Welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute. We're a national nonprofit with offices in Oakland, Los Angeles, Houston, and Washington, D.C. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. In early February, a group of young changemakers partnered with CLASP, the Center for Law and Social Policy, to launch Why We Can't Wait, the New Deal for Youth. A New Deal for Youth calls on leaders in the public and private sectors to support youth-led policy solutions to address the glaring economic and social injustices facing young people today. I'm Ruben Cantu from Prevention Institute, and I'm joined today by three New Deal for Youth changemakers. Isabel Coronado of Next 100, Kadisha Mitchell with The Cove, and Connor Kalahiki representing the Center for Native American Youth. And we're also joined by Dr. Nia West Bay, a senior policy analyst on CLASP's youth team. Welcome everybody uh, to the podcast today. I'm really excited about the idea of a new deal for youth that calls on policymakers to center the priorities of young people, particularly young people of color. So I'd like to start by asking all of you why young people can't wait for a new deal and especially why young people in your community can't wait. Isabel, let's start with you. Ishay Sango, thank you so much, Ruben, for having me here today. Why youth can't wait? Um, I don't think we've been waiting through the many youth boards that I've been a part of. I've been a part of so many different campaigns from trying to end Columbus Day and replace it with Indigenous Peoples Day and working to reform our criminal justice system to give credit to, you know, the youth who have been out there and getting stuff done. Now we want to have a seat at the table and ensure that the policies that impact our everyday life, that we have a voice in that decision-making process, you know, as we should. Kadisha, what's happening for youth in your community that can't wait? I live in a small area, small town. And I think what's happening is our youth are being silenced or they're just being sent away and not being given the option to speak for what they need in their community. Or when they do speak up, it's led by an adult voice. So they can't wait for another adult to just take over what's supposed to happen for youth. They need it now. They wanna see options and opportunities for them now, not five years down the road, but something that they can be a part of now and give themselves a name because that's like a big thing cultures like TikTok and Instagram, you know, they want to be those influencers in their generation. So they can't wait for someone to do it for them. They want to do it now, but also be given the opportunity to do it. Our youth need an option and a chance to do something. And I think they have waited long enough for my community. So small, we have one recreation place for our youth and they have to pay $5 to get in. And that took years for that to even happen. Um, And they weren't really a part of like what's going into that recreation center. So our kids just need a chance to be a part of what's happening and what's building their community because they're the next generation. Like when we're all gone, they're still going to be here. Connor, how about you? I feel like our generation faces multiple existential threats, you know, socially, economically, and especially environmentally. Um, Coming from Hawaii, climate change is a very real issue for us. With sea level rise, a lot of the coastal communities are grappling with how can we address this issue because they're going to be forced to move within the next couple years. And we can't wait because we literally don't have enough time to wait anymore. And we need action now. And especially COVID-19 and this pandemic, it's just exacerbated the issues that we see 
So I feel like the New Deal for youth is an act of self-preservation for our generation. It's the first step to ensuring that we actually do have a future. Um, I know personally that I have, I stay up late at night sometimes just thinking about what could possibly happen in the next few years. Um, and it's kind of scary, you know, to be honest. And I think the youth really want to see change now so that our kids and our kids' kids do have a future in this world. Nia, will you tell us a little bit about why CLASP decided to take on this effort? CLASP is a national anti-poverty advocacy organization in Washington, D.C. We've been around for just over 50 years now, and we really work across a range of issues that impact the lives of people with low incomes. The youth team, which is where I sit, is pretty unique at the organization in that we're the only team that's focused on a population as opposed to a particular set of policies. So we're really trying to think about any and everything that is meaningful and relevant to the lives of young people. So I think the New Deal for Youth effort really brings together sort of two strains of work that have been going on for a while with the youth team. The first is that we had planned well before the pandemic that we were going to do some data analysis to take a look at how young people had been faring in the first few years of the Trump administration across a number of the areas that we cover. So we wanted to look at different economic pieces, employment, education, that sort of thing, across health, mental health, as well as the impact of the justice system on our communities and what all of that looks like. But then the pandemic hit and the moral of the story is things were bad before the pandemic hit. And then the pandemic came and managed to make things exponentially worse on what was already a really bad situation. So I think a big piece of the why we can't wait is when you look at the data and you look at what has been happening for young people in this country, especially for young people of color in this country, for such a long time, we're long overdue for change. And then with the explosion of the economic recession in the last year because of the pandemic, the public health crisis and the racial justice uprisings that we've been seeing, there's just, we can't wait anymore. There's um, a partner that we work with who shared this African proverb that if the village does not take care of its children, they will burn it down to feel warmth. And we are in a situation where we now have decades and decades as a nation of not taking care of the children in our village. And we absolutely have to change that for the next generation. I think the other piece of work that this draws on is that we have really been working and some of the work I've been proudest of in my time at class is really trying to figure out how to bring young people's voices, perspective, and leadership directly into national policy conversations. You would think, or I would think, I'm fairly new to policy. I come out of a direct service background where we really worked on cultivating young people's leadership and developing their advocacy skills to go testify in front of city council or that kind of thing. But when I got into the national policy context, that was extremely rare, not just to not have young people in the room, but not even to be talking to them, consulting with them, getting their input, anything. And so I think we've really made an intentional effort over the last few years to think about how can we engage young people in a national policy conversation around the issues that are impacting them. Um, and you know, it's not a small feat because I know when I started working, I didn't even know what national youth policy was before I came to class. I was sort of like, that sounds interesting, but I don't really know what that means. So if I didn't know what that was, most young people around the country, that's not something that they've heard of or necessarily know about. 
but it's so needed because we keep getting the, what we're getting because we're not consulting with the people who are actually impacted by the policies that we're making. And so the New Deal for Youth has also been a really amazing opportunity to make sure that young people who are most impacted by the issues that we're talking about are the ones who are leading the policy conversations and at the forefront of the conversations that we're having about these issues. In the New Deal for Youth, you all lay out an ambitious legislative agenda for Congress and the Biden-Harris administration, and you're focusing on equity, healing, and social justice. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the specific priorities, starting with economic justice. Connor, will you tell our listeners about some of the economic justice priorities in the New Deal? Yeah, I can definitely speak a little bit to that. Um, my issue area is environmental justice. And to be honest, uh, for each issue area, we're still going through the process of finding specific priorities. Um, within the upcoming months, we're gonna be meeting uh, more frequently to discuss uh, specific policies that we wanna pursue. But I can speak to my personal experience with economic injustice. And I think it's pretty telling of how our system is not intentionally servicing young people. I applied for unemployment insurance last summer and something like 90% of young people by the summer of 2020 did not have access to the money that was supposed to go to them through the CARES Act. And I'm unfortunately part of that 90%. It's March 2nd right now and I still haven't gotten any money. And I'm unemployed because of COVID-19 and I have a lot of health issues that keep me in this state. In fact, in a couple of days, I have a hearing for an appeal regarding the decision they made on my un unemployment because they actually rejected my claim because they said that they wanted additional information from me, but they never followed up with me. And the thing that makes no sense regarding that is I've been calling them every week for hours at a time. And the way that the Hawaii unemployment system works right now is you have to call their hotline. And if they don't pick up the phone, they hang up on you. So I spend like three hours a day trying to get through and it's impossible because so many people are trying to get that money. That's just my personal experience with economic injustice. Isabel, do you have anything you'd like to add there? Yeah, just like Connor was saying, we're still laying out everything that um, we want to do in the New Deal. But I think that's something that's so cool about working um, in this youth cohort is exploring different issue areas because my issue area is in justice. And so using my lived experience to, to weave out um, in the economic justice world, such as, you know, thinking back um, how I grew up. My mom had me at 17. She was a young single Indigenous teen mom. A few things led to her incarceration for a few years. She was released and went back to school, went to law school, served our tribe. Through that experience, she's like, you know how we're going to break this cycle with you? I'm going to work as hard as I can to ensure you get your education. That's how we're going to mend a lot of these cycles. Um, and so that's exactly what I did too. I went and got my education and finished a few years ago with my master's in public health. And I think it definitely helped us raise out of those cycles, but now I'm left with student debt. And I think 
that's where we need to be heading towards next because I'm not the only one of a student of color who had to take on student debt to finish my education. And so now we're in another cycle of a different kind of poverty when you're adding on student debt. And so I'm looking forward to how the administration right now is talking about and having these conversations around forgiving student loan debt. And I don't think they should just stop at $10,000 um, forgiveness. And we should really be exploring more because I know I'm not the only one. I know many of my friends um, need more relief than just that. So that's what I'm hoping for. Isabel, thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm, I just turned 50 and I'm still paying off my student debt. So I know how real that is. Uh, Kadisha, do you have anything to add there as well? I'm in my bachelor's, I'm 25, so I'm just my senior year of my social work bachelor's, and I'm so excited, but then I look and I'm like, I am not ready to pay that $40,000 loan back. That took four failed parent plus loans because my mom's credit was too low, so I got denied, and they're like, well, if you get denied, you know, that'll increase your loan. Well, why is it that maybe we could use assistance on figuring out how can we make my mom's credit better rather than constantly denying her and that's the only way that I can get into debt more so now you know I've spent these four years getting an education that I'm going into debt for that might take me a little while to find a job because I don't have the experience to follow up with it and I'm like I feel like we're just failing students by constantly showing them that oh man if I don't have the money I can't go or I'm going to have to pay a huge loan to get an education to do something better for this community and this economy to help build up and make better jobs but on my way there I'm just gonna take a $50,000 loan out or I can't you know be considered an independent student until I'm 24 or married and I have to file for my mom but you guys deny me a better loan because her credit is bad and I, and I don't get Pell Grants so I feel like it's such a that like Connor said there's an economic injustice rather than you think we're making this better for students to go and you know, you can have a loan, you just got to pay it back. Well, that discourages students because then they're like, I don't have the money in the first place. So how am I going to pay back a loan? And if I do apply, then you're going to deny someone else. That's a hard thing that I've learned from my youth after like, I don't want to make my parents suffer financially when they've already been suffering for so long. Like why make the suffering worse when I could just go do some side job or something else that might leave me at the middle ground and not take me higher, but I'm not going to add any to suffering. So it's just our economic system is just real jacked up right now. And we need to find something and, you know, more options for that loan forgiveness and just find more plans. We just need something, a middle ground. We need something. <laughs> Another priority in the New Deal for youth is healing from trauma. Prevention Institute um, also works with a group of young leaders and organizations on very similar issues. And I was really struck by what you found in your analysis of how the pandemic is affecting young people's mental health. Kadisha, will you talk a little bit about how and what young people want to do about this and also what you want others to do on this topic? I am super passionate about anything mental health, um, especially when it comes to youth having gone through my own struggles and even the lack of support I had before there was COVID-19. And I found that a lot of my youth didn't want to speak about what was going on because there was already all of this pressure in the world and uncertainty. And there was such a focus on school and that was it. Like there wasn't a focus on what are the kids actually going through 
they was, let's get them done with their school year. Let's get them out. And, you know, but we weren't really talking about what are the kids actually thinking about? You know, they're not seeing their friends. They can't go out. They can't do anything. They're distanced from other family members. And I found a lot of my youth, their mental health took a tank and even them talking about their mental health just decreased because there was so much focus in the world about everything else that they were like, well, this doesn't matter. And families were breaking at home and they just really needed support. So with this pandemic, it made my youth that I worked with personally kind of silence themselves and not talk about what was going on, uh, which didn't make it any better because now you're learning how to do virtual school. And for some of them, that was the most schoolwork they've ever done in one week and not knowing how do I handle that? What do I do? So a lot of them lost like social cues and how to even like function in their daily lives. What's a routine? All of that was really messed up for them and they were just kind of lost. So I think there's just, I'm hoping that we'll start talking to the kids about what they're feeling and not just giving out assignments, just like have these conversations. And I've seen that there's a new policy getting made for getting more school counselors out and where they're needed. I'm really hoping that that policy will go through and it will increase the counselors in schools and increase conversations outside of what's your grade in math class. Because at the end of the day, they can have a really good grade, but be suffering with their mental health and be suffering silently. You know, I was that kid at 13. I was on honor roll still, but I was depressed and was dealing with suicidal ideations. They can still be pushing through with their grades, but they need someone to talk to. So I'm just hoping that through this, we'll have more conversations with the kids that aren't just focused on primarily their education. Like obviously education is important, but let's put the other piece behind it. Isabel, another priority in the Youth New Deal is safety including whether young people are safe in their schools and communities. At a very basic level, we know that it's hard to be healthy if you're not safe or if you don't feel safe. Will you tell us a little bit about the findings on safety and the recommendations for improving safety for youth? Yeah, just to talk a little bit about my experience first. I am in this criminal justice field and I'm constantly having this conversation, okay, what's safety look like? And you know, a lot of the community people think, the police keep us safe. We keep people locked up. We think that's going to keep us safe. But I'm on the other side of that pendulum. I'm like, how, how are we really keeping people on the other side safe? And so when I think of safety, I think of the bills that I've been trying to help push, like child-sensitive arrest safety, where uh, we're not arresting parents in front of children because that's a safety issue and that's a traumatic experience that you can't take back. That's what I'm really excited with the New Deal I'm not the only one here thinking about it in that scope and in that frame. Other things that we've covered is the school to prison pipeline, um, collateral consequences, and even changing from reform to abolition. Um, And so I'd really encourage everybody once we have nailed down our recommendations to come back and check out what we come up with. But it's just so much fun to be in community with others who are showing me new ideas and new ways of thinking too. Connor, I know environmental justice is a major focus of yours. What are some of the policies that can't wait when it comes to young people and the environment? We really want to tackle environmental racism. So dealing with issues of redlining and gentrification. Also climate change. We really want to drive home that climate change affects 
communities on a micro level? Because many people, when they conceptualize climate change, they think of it as this big entity, like global warming. It's, it's very abstracted, but we want to address the specific communities that are disproportionately affected by climate change. So shoreline communities uh, with sea level rise or places that are experiencing you know, rising temperatures. So some of my work in Rhode Island deals with there are more days in the summer where the temperatures are really high, which leads to more heat-related injuries and illnesses, specifically in low-income communities because they don't have access to air conditioning units or cooling centers. So uh, that's a very specific issue for that community. But we think that taking this communal approach where we're doing a bottom-up structure will be one of the best ways to addressing issues surrounding climate change. The other aspect that I'm really trying to push for with the New Deal for Youth is incorporating indigenous self-determination as a form of environmental justice. Because the original stewards of the land on which we inhabit have taken care of this land for thousands of years. And their practices are proven to work because of how long we've existed in these lands. So it's really elevating indigenous communities and making sure that their voices are not only heard, but they're listened to and followed because our histories with the government is very traumatic and very extractive. Personally, being Native Hawaiian, I can think of on Mauna Kea, if you're not aware of what was happening a couple of years ago, scientists were trying to build a 30 meter telescope on Mauna Wakea, which is our most sacred mountain. And the Supreme Court in 2018, I believe, ruled in favor of the scientists, despite thousands of Native Hawaiians saying that this is our most sacred mountain. There's even a chant for one of our kings, Kawi Keoli, that shows that we have genealogical ties to that mountain. And this relational basis that we have with, that Indigenous people have with the land is, I think, a structure that we need to bring into everyday practices. So figuring out ways to incorporate indigenous systems of knowledge on a wider scale, I think is very important. One example for how that could work is in California, there are tribes that perform ritualistic forest fires. And not that you need Western Westerners to validate these practices, but a Stanford study proved that those ritualistic fires actually improve the health of the forest and mitigate wildfires because through the, that action of burning the forest in a controlled setting, you get rid of a lot of leaf litter and dead trees, which could be used as fuel for a wildfire. And then after the fire goes out, it provides like necessary nutrients to that soil. So those are just very specific ways that we could be incorporating indigenous systems of knowledge. But yeah, we just really want to make that a centerpiece of our policy. I feel it's also so important to make sure that what you all are saying, you know, young people, young organizers, young leaders, speaking about these priorities that are important to you, and then making sure that those priorities are incorporated into government policy in, so, in some way. Nia, what can our listeners do to support the New Deal for Youth? I think the quickest and easiest thing that all of your listeners can do right now is to follow the New Deal for Youth on social media. We are on Twitter, we are on Instagram, we are on Facebook, all at New Deal for Youth. If you follow us on those platforms, then you'll get updates as we continue to develop our work. 
you can learn more about some of the change makers that you've been hearing from today, as well as other members of the group. You can look at our Why We Can't Wait video and then share those resources with your networks and your community. You know, we're really trying to build kind of a groundswell of um, political will for the types of changes that the young leaders are talking about. So any and everybody can help by following us on social media and helping to spread the word. I'll also preview that coming down the line sometime in May, we will have a public facing event where we will officially share for the first time, all of the policy priorities across all of the areas that we've mentioned today and more. So again, if you follow us on social media, you'll be sure to get an invite to that event and you can check us out and hear from the larger group. And really just stay engaged, stay connected, you know, talk to the young people where you are and really listen because I think to Connor's point, not just listen, but then act on what you hear. The young people in your community have brilliance and insight and ideas much the same way as all the change makers on this call. And so wherever you are and whatever you do, find ways to start listening to the young people where you are, because um, you know we're gonna get to better solutions if we all do more of that. Thanks, Nia, that's really important. And I'm always blown away by what I can continue to learn from other folks. And we'll make sure to add the why we can't wait new deal for youth hashtags in the, the show notes for the podcast. So as we begin to wrap up our conversation, I'm hoping that each of you can tell our listeners a little bit about one of your top priorities that you're going to continue to focus on to make life better in your community. Connor, would you, uh, would you get us started? For me, a top priority in all my work is trying to figure out ways to build meaningful and empowering relationships with indigenous communities so that we can progress as a country. There is a long history of violence, suppression, and oppression of Native peoples that needs to be addressed and remedied. So I feel like the work that we're doing through the New Deal for Youth is a definite first step forward in building these meaningful relationships, elevating indigenous plights, and also empowering indigenous peoples. Isabel, what about you? I just came out with something really great through The Next 100, where you could find at www.thenext100.com. Um, I came out with my first policy idea, which is called the Flourishing Children of Incarcerated Parents Initiative. And it's basically a grant program that the federal government, if passed, would send money to state DOCs to comprehensively support children impacted by parental incarceration. And of course, I came up with this idea based on my personal lived experience and through many children that, that I've come across and hearing their stories too. And I don't want to just impact my community because there's 2.7 million children in the United States with an incarcerated parent enough to fill 5,100 average-sized public schools. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in that area. And so I'm really looking forward. And I had made a little snippet to kind of make a breakdown on TikTok. If you don't want to go check that out at Isabel Coronado, Coronado 96 on TikTok, um, kind of break, gives you a breakdown of my policy idea. Great. Thanks for sharing that. We'll, we'll look for those links and add them to the notes for the podcast also. Kadisha, what are you going to be focusing on in your community? I think the next big thing is, I guess, two, I guess two next big things. One being a safe place for young people to come and just have someone to talk to. 
I live in Maryland and our state needs way more clubhouses or things that are free to you just to come hang out and be a safe place where it's obviously there's adults, you know, keeping, keeping things cool, keeping us all together, but it's a safe place where they can be themselves and focus on their mental health and have more discussions on how to handle those kind of things. I was doing a support group. So I want to revamp that support group and just give kids a safe place that there's no fear to be where they're at right now. And kind of just dealing and talking about what they're going through. And then the second thing is I'm also a photographer. So I'm getting ready to start a new campaign just so that kids know it's okay not to be okay. I think sometimes they're so afraid of their feelings, which is another part of why they don't talk about them and afraid of mental health uh, and that stigma that comes with it. So um, let me starting that up and getting that in the works and just giving kids an opportunity to share their stories, get some pictures taken and just know that it's okay. What they're going through is okay. So those are my two big things that I'm getting ready to do in our community. Nia, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Yeah, I'll just say, I think one of the things that's really phenomenal about the New Deal for Youth, besides the young leaders that we've been able to bring together, is the way that we're building out this policy agenda across so many issue areas. Young people don't live single issue lives. And as we were sort of building out the charter that the New Deal for Youth Changemakers are working under, the, the sort of document that's guiding their work, we talked about what we wanted our work together to look like. And the words that they shared were things like intersectional, holistic, comprehensive, and revolutionary. So, you know, what's happening in the environment impacts your mental health. What happens with your mental health impacts what it looks like when you come in contact with schools or with the justice system. Your immigration status is related to all of the above. The, we wanna make sure that this platform is taking care of our most marginalized young people because if we do better by those groups, then we're gonna do better by all of us. So I'm really excited to see this work to continue to develop being broad-based, being cross-sectional, being intersectional, being inclusive, and really taking care of the most marginalized members of our communities. Huge thank you so much for all of you for spending time with us, Isabel, Kadisha, Connor, and Nia. And thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. To learn more about why we can't wait, a new deal for youth, visit clasp.org and search for the new deal for youth, or you can look at our show notes for this podcast. I also want to let you know about a scholarship that Prevention Institute and Healthline are awarding this year to three students of color who are working to reduce health inequities in their communities. You can learn all about it at preventioninstitute.org. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback about this podcast. Find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's Prevention, I-N-S-T. Prevention Inst.